theyeshiva.net. Welcome, everybody. Good morning to one and all. Before I begin, I just want to make two announcements. Number one, next week there is no shear. So if you could please share it with your uh, friends or family or anyone that you know that comes. Not everybody's on the email, so uh, to avoid extra tircha. So if you could please tell those who often come or sometimes come that next week there will not be a shear. I'm out of town. That's number one. Number two, next Thursday, that's a week from this Thursday, we're going to resume our Emuna series here in the tent. That's a shear every Thursday night for Telag uh, Boemer, excluding, of course, Yamim Toivim, which is going to be focused on various uh, elements and basics of Emuna, various questions that people have. That's every Thursday night, 8.30 p.m. It's for men and for women and for teenagers right here with a mechitza and uh, hot food. And I told them to put on the women's section salad instead of chalant. Because last time, last time we had an event here, I don't know what, two weeks ago, and the guy puts kugel and chalant at the women's section, like the men's section, because a guy did it. So uh, I saw at the end of the, the, the end of the event, all the men <laughs> went to the women's section, and they, uh, I was happy for them because they had a lot of leftovers. Uh, but everybody is invited, especially for young people or teenagers. That's next, th- beginning not this Thursday, but next Thursday, February 15th at 8.30 p.m. They tell an anecdote about a fellow who uh, came into a bar one evening and he ordered a drink. And when he finished his drink, he took the glass and he threw it at the bartender's face. And the man screams, what is this? And he says, I apologize, I'm so embarrassed with my behavior, but I have this uncontrollable rage in me. And I just lose it. Okay, I forgive you this time. Next night he comes, orders another shot, finishes the drink, whack, right at his face. What now? He says, I'm so embarrassed. I I hate myself. I'm ashamed. Please forgive me. I just have all these demons and skeletons in me, and I lose it. Next night, same story. He says, what's this? He says, I'm just, I hate myself, and I'm so embarrassed. Please. He says, listen, either you go to therapy, or I'm going to call the police. Promise me you don't come back here for a year. You have to go to therapy. He says, okay, I promise. He doesn't show up for a year. Comes back a year later, orders a glass, drinks it, he downs it, takes the cup, whack, right at the bartender's face. The poor guy is bleeding, he's maimed, he's bruised. He says, what's this? He says, I went to therapy and now I'm not embarrassed anymore. Today we're going to explore a halacha, a law, which is rooted, it originates in Parshas Mishpatim. At first glance, it seems like very physical, very technical, dealing with issues and questions and dilemmas that would seem to have little relevance to most people's lives, at least to many people's lives today. And yet on deeper glance, we will see this law as a reflection of a deeper cosmic and psychological and spiritual truth 
in human life. One of the main issues, one of the main laws discussed in Parshish Mishpatim is if a person owns an animal and the animal aggressively attacks and damages another person's animal. The way the Torah illustrates and describes the scenario is if somebody, say, has a bull, the bull is a domesticated bull. And therefore, its behavior of attacking another animal is uncharacteristic. It's not a wild, untamed, uncontrolled bull. This is a domesticated ox. And yet, sadly, uncharacteristically, to the surprise and utter shock and dismay of the owner, your bull goes and gores and attacks another animal. It maims it, it damages it, it hurts it, or it even kills it. The injury is fatal. This, it's not only about a bull. Somebody has a dog. Right? It's very common today that people have dogs. And the dog is a tame dog. The dog is a nice dog. The dog is a well-behaved dog. But it happens. The dog suddenly goes and attacks a puppy or another, a neighbor's dog or a friend's dog, and injures it badly or kills it. What's the law? You remember a few years ago in Connecticut, somebody had in their home a chimp. You remember? You remember that story? And the chimp was very well behaved. This was a domesticated chimp, best friends with the owner. And one day, the chimpanzee just lost it. And uh, the horrific damages it caused the person who was in the house was a well, well, well-known well, story. What does the halacha have to say about this situation? In that case, it was a person, which the Parshish Meshpatim also discusses. But the question we're addressing here is if your animal damages another animal. Or kills another animal. So the Torah Meshpatim, and this is the law, gives a very interesting verdict. And that is the first three times since this behavior is completely uncharacteristic and abnormal for the animal. So this type of animal is called a shur tam, which means an innocent ox. A tam, tam is like innocent. Tamim, tmimus. It's considered to be an innocent ox, and therefore the owner is obligated to pay chatzinezek, half the damage. In other words, the losses are split between the owner and the victim. Ah, you'll say, what's the victim's fault? Right? An American law doesn't work that way. Why is it the victim's fault? Why, if his dog was killed, or his bull was killed, or his cow was killed, or whatever animal was killed, why is it his or her fault to split the losses? The answer is, you're right. It's not. But we also don't blame the owner. It's also not the owner's fault. He or she is responsible for their animals. But this animal, for years has never behaved this way. So the Torah deems him as innocent as well. And therefore, they split the losses. It's almost like it was, so to speak, a mazel that this person lost their animal, and they split 50%, 50%, which literally means he pays for half the damage. So if the loss was $1,000, say the animal was worth $1,000, I mean, there's maybe an emotional element, but that's a separate issue. So he pays $500. That's the first three times. However, if this ox has gored three times, now its status in halacha changes from a shir tam to a shir hamuud. Muud in Hebrew means it's, uh, it has a proclivity. 
It's prone to gore. You know that this is not a domesticated ox anymore. This is a dangerous ox. Even though months can go by and nothing happens. But if three incidents occurred, it changes halachically, legally, the status of your bull or any other animal. Say a person has a dog and the dog attacked three times. And now it's the owner's responsibility to guard this animal excessively and avoid any potentiality for such damage. And if there is such damage, we deem and confer complete responsibility on the owner of that animal, and therefore he or she has to pay what's called nezek shalem, the complete damage. This is the difference between sher tam and sher hamuad, the innocent ox, so to speak, and the ox that is prone to damage after three times. There is a discussion among the various acharonim if uh, after three times it's a new status or it just reveals retroactively that this gore has always been an, an aggressive, undomesticated bull with some halachic ramifications. But this is the general outline. And as mentioned, it's about three times. After three times, its status changes. Once, once, twice. Once it's three times, you already see that there is a, uh, there is a nature here. It's not just a fluke. It's not just a one-time incident. And therefore, you are now responsible to treat this animal differently. You can't just let him walk near other bulls. You can't just let him hang out near other dogs. It's simply too dangerous. If you want to take him out of your property and have him contact and have him, have him be a, you want him to be able to socialize and have contact with other animals, you're responsible for all the results because he's a dangerous or very aggressive, let's put it, very aggressive animal. There is a very interesting halacha. The Mishnah and the Chazal tell us, and there's a whole tractate of Gemara, Mishnah and Gemara dedicated to these laws, called Baba Kama, which is based on the verses in Parshish Mishpatim. And there is a very interesting law, Mu'ad l'shabasis, Einoi Mu'ad l'yemei If somebody has an ox that gored other oxen three times on Shabbos, one Shabbos, next Shabbos, and the third Shabbos, this animal is not considered a Mu'ad for weekdays. Only Shabbos, not weekdays. Which is a very fascinating halacha. You wouldn't think that the ox follows a calendar. But that's the halacha. On Shabbos, yes. Shabbos, if it gores a fourth time, you have to pay full damage. If the damage is $20,000, he's only responsible to pay. However, if something happens on Tuesday, the owner has to pay half damage. Why is that? This is what our sages, our rabbis teach in the Mishnah. What's the logic for this? So Rashi says a fascinating idea. Rashi in Baba Kama, page 37, Lamed Zion says, because Jewish animals are forbidden to work on Shabbos. And when the ox has nothing to do, it goes crazy. Shimum, shimum, boredom, monotony, brings out the worst in people. And in teenagers as well. <laughs> it's, it's, about, it's about a nature. It's, it's not about the ox. It's about a certain concept. When somebody has nothing to do with their life, and on Shabbos, the animals, the ox, they don't work. 
One of the Aserah Sadibris is, Shabbos is not only to be observed by the people, but also by the animal, which is in itself a fascinating law. I'm not allowed to have my animal work on Shabbos. The animal is let, is allowed to relax and just chill out on Shabbos and enjoy its the day of vacation. It's great for the animal. It shows the dignity one has to have towards an animal. That on Shabbos, no animal of a Jew was allowed to put to work. I can't have my ox plow the field or do any other labor, whether it's my horse or my donkey or my camel or any other animal. The animal is just let to be and, so to speak, enjoy life. But there are consequences, Rashi says. The boredom of the animal, the fact that it's not being harnessed to work, can express itself in wild and aggressive behavior, and therefore it doesn't translate into weekday behavior. It's not an essential quality. Sometimes you have to be able to identify this. This kid is bored. He or she has nothing to look forward to. No outlets for their energy. All they can do is climb walls or become an intellectual mathematician, which they can do both, and therefore the result is they start goring whatever is around them if they feel they're capable of goring it. Toysvus gives a second reason that he quotes from Talmud Yerushalmi, and that is equally fascinating. Animals are extremely sensitive. On Shabbos, Toysvus says everybody wears different clothes. And you have to understand this contrast was very extreme in ancient times. People didn't have a lot of clothes, and they had a special set of garments that were beautiful, clean, often white, for Shabbos. So Toysvah says the ox does not recognize its owners, its family on Shabbos, and it goes crazy. Because of the change of attire, the ox feels very insecure. These are people I know. Suddenly I don't know them. Because for six days it was used to another set of garments, and therefore, in this insecurity and fear, the ox becomes aggressive. Again, it's not about aggression. It's about fear. It's about anxiety of not knowing what is around me, which is again another very profound psychological lesson when it comes to humanity. Here's an example. They seem like technical laws with animals, but they really have a lot of psychological relevance when you have to diagnose a situation, a problem, even in a child's life or an adult's life. There's an interesting story, parenthetically, about the Rogachover Gaon. The Rogachover Gaon was a man named Rabbeinu Yosef Rosen. He was one of the great geniuses, not only of his generation, but of many generations. He passed away, Tainus Esther, 1936, before the war. He was a rav of a city called Dvinsk, in Latvia. And the Rogachover Gaon was a man, his entire life was Torah. And a woman came over to him once, as the rabbi of the city, and she had an issue. She was a young mother, and she was nursing her baby. And on Shabbos, the baby would not nurse. On Shabbos, the baby would not nurse. All week, the nursing was fine. On Shabbos, somehow, the baby would not nurse. So she comes to the Rav, the Rogachavagon, for her problem. Without skipping a hard's beat, he tells her, it's a toysvis in Babakama, page 37. What are you talking about? So he tells her over this Toysavis that when the ox sees different set of clothes, he doesn't recognize the people and he gets anxious. 
He says, this is what's happening with your baby. Your infant, because Shabbos, you look completely different. So this baby is experiencing anxiety, and therefore it's hard for the baby to nurse. This is what he told her immediately when she shared with him the problem that she's having on Shabbos with her baby. And indeed, she altered that, and the baby was fine. The baby continued with its behavior. Babies are so, we sometimes don't realize what infants are aware of and what they're not aware of, what they pick up, what they don't pick up, what they detect, what they don't detect. But they detect much more than we often can imagine. Now comes the following question. What happens if somebody has such an ox or bull, or any animal really, I say ox because that's the illustration the Torah gives, but it could be any animal, as I said, it could be a dog, it could be a chimp, Excuse me, it could be any other beast or animal that is domesticated. What happens if it indeed is transformed from a Sher Tam into a Sher Hamuad, meaning an ox that is now prone to damage, and therefore I have to take full responsibility to protect it, and if not, I am responsible as its owner to pay full damages. Can it ever, can it ever revert back? to its more innocent, domesticated status, where if afterwards it gores again, I only have to pay half damage. Or once it becomes a Sher Hamuad, once it changes its category, that's it. This is what it is for life. And whenever it damages, you have to pay full damage. So our sages tell us, the Chazal, the Chachamim tell us again in Tractate Bavakama, that there is a method. What is the method? Sometimes you can train an animal and train it well. A wild animal, they do it, trainers do it all the time. A wild dog can become tamed. A wild bull can be cultivated to be more relaxed and more respectful and know of its boundaries as is as by using the techniques that are continuously employed by animal trainers. And therefore, if this Sher Hamuad is dealt with in an appropriate way, but it's not enough that the trainer says, I think he changed. Rather, you look at this animal and it's hanging around children and it's hanging around other animals and it's not displaying any aggressive behavior and this happens continuously. So then this animal status changes. Once it has proven itself to have been trained well and go in to the category of domesticated animals that can be trusted to be around other animals or people without the fear of them aggressively attacking them, this animal status now changes. But it has to be trained. You can't just say, oh, my animal changed. Based on what? If the animal was worked with and the training affected a change in behavior that is visible, now we could say the animal is not anymore a Sher Hamuad. It's back to its old status as a Sher Tam. And we repeat the pattern again, meaning the next three times if something happens, the person is only responsible to pay half damage, unless once again we see that it becomes back to its old undomesticated behavior, and you have to pay Nezek Shalom full damage. However, the halacha teaches that there's one more method. And this method is what I'm going to focus on today because it seems so bizarre. And that is, I have an ox or a dog that is prone to damage, meaning... It has proven itself once, twice, three times that it has attacked other animals badly or not badly. And therefore I have to pay full damage. I didn't train the animal. What if I sell this ox to somebody else? Or I give it as a gift to somebody else? The halacha is rishus 
Mishana. The change of authority, the change of domain, changes the legal status of this animal. It is now automatically considered a shirtam, an innocent domesticated bull, and the new owner is not responsible to pay full damage until it proves itself to be a shirhamuad after three times in his or her domain, which the commentators struggle with. I understand if I trained the animal and I worked with it and I disciplined it with the tools that are used to train animals, consequences, rewards, punishments, etc., and all of the various tools that are used. And the animal has proven to grow up or to alter its behavior. I got it. There's no need to constantly assume that it's a damaging animal when it's not anymore. The animal is now well-behaved and domesticated. If something will happen in three years, okay, there may be a fluke, but you can't hold them responsible. But just to say, I took my ox, I sold it to you, I gave it to you as a gift. It's now in a different home under a different owner. Nothing was done with the animal. Nonetheless, la halacha. The halacha, even though there's a few opinions, and the Rambam gives this verdict in Hilchis Niske Momen, I think chapter 6 in the laws that deal with your property, your animals damaging other animals. In chapter 6, this is the law that if I sell my animal or give it as a gift, its status is altered. It's metamorphosized legally. And now the new owner has again that freedom to relax. And the first three times this ox gores another animal, he only has to pay half. Until he's warned after three times, and then he takes full responsibility, as with the first owner. And the Mepharshim, the commentator, that's why. This doesn't seem to make sense. It's not fear. Why should the second owner not hold on? Just like you change the title. You change the title of ownership. The deed was transferred from one owner to another owner. The responsibility should be transferred. I'm selling you a wild dog. You want to buy the wild dog? Great. It's great for security. Wait to guard you at night, but you have to take responsibility. Why is he off the hook? Again, we're not talking about a bull or a dog that, were, that are by nat- naturally undomesticated. We're talking about a dog and a bull that were once domesticated. In other words, by nature, you have animals that are not domesticated. So then they're not a shartam. For example, a lion <laughs> or a tiger, you don't say the first three times you have to pay half the damage. It doesn't work. Even if you train a tiger, good luck. Even those in the zoos, they know that you can't expect from a tiger. Once in a while, there's always these stories. These are animals that are prone. They just, they don't allow themselves to be confined. It's just what they are. Just who they are. The concept of tam doesn't exist with many of these animals. Because uh, a cheetah, a leopard, the, the Mishnah discusses the animals that, they're not domesticated. We're not talking about that. We're talking about animals that are domesticated. And therefore, the first three times, the owner was not fully responsible. But then, these animals learned to deviate from their natural behavior and nature. And now, you can either retrain them or sell them. When you retrain them, they go back to their original status. And even when you sell them or give them as a gift, they go back to their original status, which doesn't seem to make sense. So one of the explanations, Rabbeinu Hameiri, Rabbeinu Menachem Hameiri, one of the great Talmudic commentators, says something surprising. He says that the ox going out from your domain to another domain, from your authority to another authority, changes its mazel and its teva. It changes its mazel, that those are his words, and its nature, which again requires explanation. 
What is the meaning of this? Is this a spiritual thing? Is this a physical thing? The most common and probably logical explanation is that it has to do again with the sensitivity of an animal. If an animal can distinguish between the clothes you wear on Shabbos and the clothes you wear in the weekdays, the animal becomes immediately and is acutely aware of the fact that it's now been transferred to a new owner. Both practically geographically, it's not in the same home, it's not in the same barn, it's not in the same field, it's not in the same corral, it's not in the same pen, it's not in the same courtyard, as well as socially and emotionally, there's a new owner giving orders. There's somebody else feeding it. There's somebody else nurturing it. There's somebody else taking care of it. So right when the animal is transferred, either by a gift, a gift I give to somebody, or sale, immediately the animal knows, ooh, there's a new system. I don't know if I should compare, but those of us in school who were mischievous, it's always the first day of a new year, you, you, you put your behavior on hold in order to see and check out the new teacher, especially if there's a new principal. You remember those days? Now, usually after a few minutes, you see that the new teacher, you'll also be able to wrap around your finger, and it's fine. You just go on with your old behavior. But there's that five, ten-minute pause of even the most mischievous, rebellious, aggressive children, the nightmare of every teacher and principal in the school, that the first day, this is what we call five minutes of grace that they give teachers and yeshivas, not a hundred days, but five, ten minutes of grace. And the boys and the girls who are very smart and intuitive check out the quality of the new one. And neither, you know, they wink to each other with eyes. Here we go, here's another one. Here's another one, uh, you know, that we're going to enjoy for the year. And once in a while, if the teacher is a real pedagogue, he or she seizes the moment and the five minutes of grace and uh, does something a little different. A teacher once told me that uh, he came in the first day and he was given, he was told he was given a pretty challenging class and particularly one child who was known to terrorize every teacher. This was a yeshiva in Brooklyn where people are generally more aggressive and more uptight, I guess, because of lack of space or it's New York or whatever the situation is. Somebody asked me why people in New York are, up, are uptight and in a bad mood, I said, you would also be if the light at the end of your tunnel was New Jersey. <laughs> but uh, I love New Jersey, actually. So this was a, t- a tough class. So the teacher gets up, and uh, he was given three minutes of grace. And he looks at his students, and he says, I just want to tell you how I'm going to run this class. Yeah. It's going to be almost impossible for you to do anything that will cause me not to love you children. It's going to be very, very hard to convince me that you're evil kids. It's almost impossible. You're going to have to work so hard to persuade me that you're really bad, because it runs contrary to my entire faith. So just know, in this class you're going to be loved and cherished, and it's not going to be easy to prove to me that you don't deserve it. And he had one of the greatest years, particularly with that child. So back to our discussion. Halacha says, animals know and are acute to every alteration, especially a new owner. The 
Pasuk says, Yoda Shorkineu, Koineu, Vichamoyer, Evus, Ba'olov. The ox knows, Yeshaya Hanovi, it's an amazing, the ox knows its owner, and the donkey knows the trough of its master. Yoda Shorkineu. The ox knows its owner, and the chamor knows the trough of its, of its master. And Yeshaya Hanavi laments, and yet my people don't. The ox and the donkey do know, and yet my people don't. Because sometimes, as we know, animals are far more aware of reality than sometimes people who in their sophistication can really deviate from reality. So when the animal is transferred to another domain, everything is on hold. If by nature it's not domesticated, it's innately aggressive genetically, then there's no difference. It is what it is. You can't change the color of your eye, you can't change your genes just because you're going to another owner. But if it's learned behavior, if it's acquired behavior, because really this animal was domesticated, Halacha says the moment he comes to a new owner, everything is on hold. He is sensitive, or she is sensitive, the animal is sensitive, to the fact that there's a whole new system. There's a different personality, there's a different energy, there's a different presence. There was once a uh, horse, its name was Hans, Hans, they named the horse. It was owned by somebody in Germany in the early 1900s, the early 20th century. And Hans got a reputation of being uniquely clever, smart and wise to the point of having the ability to follow mathematical equations and actually be able to (coughs) study math and figure out mathematics, which was unheard of in the animal kingdom and for a horse. And this became a spectacle for all of Europe. And the owner of the horse made an enormous enormous amount of money. People would come and he would look at the horse and say, Hans, you got to tell me how much is 90 times 86. And the horse would begin lifting one of its feet up and down and count. And, and he, No, he would start counting. He would start counting the numbers. And when he would reach the right number, the horse would give a clap. This was the number. And first it was simple stuff. 10 plus 10... 30 minus 10, whatever it is. And then it started to get more complicated. And this was a phenomenon. No one ever heard of such a horse. Fascinating. People became suspicious. Researchers and scientists, psychologists became suspicious. They thought it to, people saw it, it was a reality. This horse had the ability to calculate difficult mathematical equations. It was absolutely unheard of. So they came and they started to look, and it was real. It was not fake. There was nobody whispering to the horse the right number. <laughs> not that that would help. But rather, he would mamish, till, as long as he was on the wrong number, the horse did not display anything. He came to the right number, and the horse said this was the one. Or to the point that the horse itself was picking up its foot, going through the numbers, instead of speaking the numbers, and then reaching the right number, say the right number would be 172, and then stopping. This is it, 172. Or whatever the number was. And they're looking and looking, and they're trying, they feel that this is something is off. And they're searching, what is it? And they can't figure it out. It's all legit. There's no lies, no deception. 
It's very hard to deceive it here because horses are, you know, you, there's no whispering and there's no secret video that's, or, or, or secret MP3 that's playing in its ear. And then they decided what if they would separate the owner from the horse. They would put a curtain in between them. And they did. They put a curtain in between them and they saw that the horse was now not always accurate. Yes and no, sometimes yes, sometimes no, sometimes a little off. Why? The horse heard the question. The owner was there, but the horse couldn't see the owner. They decided to take the owner completely away and do this with the horse on its own. And it was all over. There was not one question that the horse got right, and they couldn't figure it out. Another guy is standing there. How much is nine plus nine? The horse couldn't figure it out. How much is nine times nine? The horse couldn't know. The horse didn't even begin to know, like any other animal. This is not what animals are for. No. And they searched and searched, and then they figured it out. And in a way, in a way, it diminished, of course, the mathematical genius of this horse, but it elevated the sensitivity an emotional sense of closeness of the source. What they realized was as follows. If this guy is standing in front of Hans, the owner, and he says, Hans, you got to tell us how much is nine times nine. The horse is feeling the anxiety of his owner as long as he didn't get to the right number. So as though he's going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, the horse feels anxiety. As the horse is going and pedaling with its foot, and it's already holding by 39 and 40 and 41 and 50, 60, 70, etc., it's feeling the anxiousness of the owner who is scared that the horse won't get the right answer. And when the horse reaches the right number, the horse senses the relaxation of the owner. And the horse knows, that's it, we're in paradise, time to stop. It had nothing to do with math, nothing to do with numbers. It had all to do with relationships. It had all to do with the emotional acuteness of an animal. And those who deal with animals and are sensitive to animals and aware of animals know how true this is. And the same is true in many ways in relationships as well. We often make algorithms and we define life based on algorithms and there's, of course, a lot of value to that. But it had, this had nothing to do with mathematical algorithms. This had all to do with the con- emotional connectedness to its owner. And when there was somebody else there, it was completely irrelevant. Because I couldn't care less about your numbers. But I could care about you. And in education, that itself is a very, very powerful idea. So when this owner, Halacha says, this owner is by a, this ox is by a new owner. Yesterday he was goring everybody in town. Everyone in town was gored by this behemoth. But there's a new owner, everything has changed. We say innocent, domesticated. You know why? Because the sensitivity to the new owner gives the new owner an opportunity to look this ox in the eye and say, we're safe, we're good. Whether it's a horse, or an ox, or a dog, or really any animal, again, an animal that is naturally domesticated, important to emphasize. It's not about changing genes miraculously. This is about going back to its original nature. Ah, you didn't train the animal? You don't need to train the animal. 
by changing the domain and the authority of the animal, halacha says, its status changes. Because it's sensitive to the fact that there's a new order, and now it's really up to the owner. And therefore, the first three times, we assume it to be innocent, and he pays half damage after three times, goes back to Nezak Shalom. Most of us sitting in this room probably don't own oxen or bulls. Even if you do, even if you do, hopefully you don't have to deal with you own an ox. (laughs) Of course, of course. Which makes it, if you didn't tell the new owner, it's not a question that he's not responsible. The poor guy didn't know. But we're talking about a real transaction. You gave him all the information, which would make him responsible. You want to buy this dog, no problem, it's a wild dog. And yet without going through training, the Allah says changing domains is sufficient to bring it back to its old nature. Yet every single mitzvah, every single halacha in Judaism could be understood and studied on two levels. The concrete physical level, dealing with civil relationships, dealing with monetary transactions, or in this case dealing with civil damages between animals and animals. And who is responsible and how much do they carry responsibility? But every single law in Judaism is also a mirror, a reflection of an emotional, psychological, and spiritual idea. In fact, each halacha can be understood completely, not only on a concrete physical level, but as a metaphor for dynamics and patterns and issues and situations and dilemmas that play themselves out within the human psyche, within the human animal. And all of the laws that deal with relationships between animals and how much you're responsible and asher tam and asher hamuad could be are mirrored and reflected in the inner life of a person, which makes the study of these laws not only studying halacha and legalities, but also you're studying your own soul, your own patterns, your own life. And we're going to use this halacha as an example. Each of us has a little bull inside of us, or a little animal. It's called a nefesh habahamis, an animal consciousness or an animal soul that exists within every single human being. We operate not on one level of consciousness, we operate on two levels of consciousness. One level of consciousness is called the nefesh habahamis, the animal or beastly consciousness, and one level of consciousness is called the nefesh alikis, the divine or the transcendental consciousness. The animal soul is not inherently evil. It's a mistake when somebody looks at their animal soul and says, you're evil, you're bad. Judaism does not believe in original sin, meaning that every person is inherently evil, and therefore you're in need of salvation. Like an animal, some animals are actually very cute. You can have a little cute puppy. It's adorable, it's cute, but it's still an animal. And we have that animal soul in us. The animal soul focuses on its quest for self-preservation and for self-gratification. The animal is aware of its needs, deeply aware of its needs, sometimes better than people. And the animal dedicates all of its energies and resources to be able to feel comfortable and to be able to feel good 
and to be able to live. And what the animal is not sophisticated. The animal never sees the sky. The animal doesn't know about cosmology or astronomy or even a sun or a moon. The animal knows what feels good. If this feels good, I'm in. If it doesn't feel good, I'm out. And you can't blame an animal. It doesn't make sophisticated choices. It's mostly programmed. It's genetically programmed. That's in the real animal world. When we say that a human being has an animal soul, an animal consciousness, that title is an accurate title. It's a profound title. Because it means we also have that dimension within us. A dimension within us that is extremely... In, uh, in neuroscience today we know that there are different regions of the brain. There's the amygdala, which is basically our ability to respond to what seems like instant danger and to do the right thing to protect ourselves. Completely instinctive, like an animal, like even an insect, a tiny little insect. It becomes acutely aware of danger and it does what it does, fight or flight, in order to be able to protect itself. It doesn't have all the alternatives open to it. Whatever it is aware, whatever I can do to protect myself, I will do. That's a real region of my brain. We have another region of the brain called the limbic brain, which is sometimes called the social brain, which is social. It feels, it's, it's the emotional part of the brain that is very sensitive to relationships. Good relationships or dangerous relationships. Then there's the other part of the brain that is reflective, it can actually be almost dispassionate and detached and look at different situations and make decisions from a dispassionate point of view of what is right, what is wrong. The first two are very deeply associated with the Nefesh Bahamas. The amygdala and the limbic brain are very deeply connected to the animal instinct in the human soul. Now it's important to emphasize that neuroscience is now cutting edge. And each day they're discovering astounding truths about the brain, its capabilities, its complexities, its astonishing depth. At present, neuroscientists are distinguishing between the amygdala, which as we said is the most primitive part of the brain, which is conditioned to sensitize us to potential danger, to detect potential danger, to respond to potential danger. You have the limbic system, called the social brain, which is responsible for most, m- much of our emotional life, our emotional connections, our emotional feelings and relationships. And then you have the third region, the analytical dimension of the brain, which is often known as the prefrontal cortex. This is analytical, and it's capable of weighing the consequences of alternative choices, and to do it in a dispassionate way. They sometimes uh, refer to the prefrontal cortex as the executive function. The functions carried out by the, prefront, by, by the prefrontal cortex are sometimes called the executive function. Executive function relates to abilities to differentiate among conflicting thoughts, determine good and bad, better and best, same and different, future consequences of current activities, the ability to work towards a, a goal, a defined goal, make predictions of various outcomes, expectations based on actions, and social control, the ability to to suppress or hold up urges that if they're not suppressed, they can lead to unacceptable outcomes. This is another dimension of the brain. And the first two are very much, I think they're very good models 
to explain something of what we call in Yiddishkeit, in Torah, in, in Kabbalah, and in Musr, and in Machshava, and in Chesidus, the Nefesh HaBahamas, the animal consciousness. And then there is the human consciousness, the Tzalem Elikim, the divine image, and then within the Jew, what we call the Nefesh HaShemiz, Yisrael, the Chelek HaLekamimah. Yeah. No, you're right. The amygdala is part of the limbic system. I know. The limbic system includes many aspects of the brain, including the amygdala. Right, right. I was just distinguishing between the part of the brain that conditions us to potential danger and the emotional and the emotional aspect, the part that's responsible for emotional connections, the social brain, right? But the amygdala is part of the limbic system, right? Now, this animal is not bad at all. But if it's not trained, if it's not educated, if it's not disciplined, especially if it suffers trauma or abuse, or it experiences a lot of negativity and dysfunctionality from a little cute puppy, it can turn into a dangerous German shepherd. From a little cute calf, it can turn into a bull that you don't want to start up with. Is the bull essentially evil? No. The bull is trying to protect itself. That's what it knows to do. It's trying to protect itself and it's trying to feel good. And this is what it knows about feeling good. So this bull is not bad. And the bull can actually... The bull is actually responsible for our lives. The Nefesh Bahamas is associated with a lot of our biological life force. Just like every animal has a soul, we also have an animal soul. Nefesh Habasar Bedami, it's the natural life force of a person. The electricity of the human body, giving us our biological functionality, and giving us various dimensions of human consciousness. We also have another soul, which is uniquely human, What's called the Tzalem Elikim, the divine image. In the Jewish soul, it's called the Nefesh Elikis, which is a Chelek Elikami Mal, a divine soul, which is a piece of God that animals don't have. Now, what happens with these animals? You can have an animal that's a Shertam, it's innocent. It's still an animal. It protects itself, it focuses on itself, it wants to be comfortable, happy, self preservation, self gratification. In fact, it can even become a complete ally with the divine soul. It could become a complete partner with the godly soul. Even if not, and there is a tremendous struggle between them, which is the common reality in people's lives, but nonetheless, very often this shayr in people's lives is a shayr tam, it's innocent, and yet, even an innocent bull can one day wake up and start goring. That bull starts goring. And then the owner says, I didn't expect this. This is abnormal behavior. And therefore you're only responsible for half the damage, meaning you're not even taking full responsibility because it's almost like you couldn't do anything. You didn't know about it. But after three times, the status changes from a shartam to a shartamuad. What does this mean in people's lives? Even the most innocent animal has a bad day. (laughs) An innocent animal has a bad day. The animal in it takes over, and it loses it, and it can go crazy, and cause a lot of damage. But nonetheless, the first three times, it's still called a shaitan. What does this mean in people's lives? We lose it. 
Even the best father or the best husband, once in a while, can lose it. Even the most amazing woman, wife and mother, with all due respect, could once in a while lose it. And yet, it's not the end of the world. Because in life, perfection is not demanded. Accountability is demanded. People who demand perfection are living in la-la land. People who demand accountability are living in a real world. I could make mistakes. I could sometimes say something obnoxious, self-centered, and hurtful. But I can apologize. And I could say, this triggered very deep pain in me. It triggered very deep hurt in me. It triggered an old issue within me. It triggered very deep fears in me. And the way to deal with it, my amig... (laughs) My amygdala, the way to deal with it was I had to protect myself. So I started to holler. I started to scream. And I apologize. I said things that I should have not said. Okay, you have an animal in you. On the contrary, this is the grace of a human being that he or she is not perfect, but they're accountable. And I'm accountable for my behavior 24 hours a day, and I could make mistakes. And who does not make such types of errors and mistakes? So you can have the most cute and delicious and adorable Tati, who sometimes starts goring. Especially if he's hungry. They say with men, you have to know two things. They have to be fed and watered. But fed and watered could mean on different levels. So sometimes in the most delicious and wonderful and graceful and selfless mommy can also lose it. You're stressed, you're exhausted, you're overwhelmed, you're deeply hurt, you're deeply worried, you're full of anxiety, present company excluded. I know. They say, that what was, the, what was the, the, the nature of a Jewish telegram? The nature of a Jewish telegram was, start worrying, details to follow. There's always what to worry about. I heard yesterday a conversation between two people. A woman and a man. He has two children and she has 12 children. And they were talking, they were schmoozing, I happened to be there. I was walking out. And uh, when this man heard that this woman has 12 children, he was like overwhelmed. He was like... You know, I don't, I don't know how you live, I don't know how you breathe, I don't know how you exist, I don't know how you function. I have two children, and it's hard enough. How do you deal with it? So she told them, I want to tell you something. Each child takes out all of your kaychas. No difference if you have 12 or you have one. Each child takes all of you. All of you has to be present in order to give this child what they need. Physically and even more socially and psychologically and emotionally and spiritually. You have two children, it's all of you. And you have one child, it's all of you. And you have two children, it's all of you. (laughs) So a person is overwhelmed. And when I'm overwhelmed, I could respond. And if I'm not feeling well, And if I'm having other issues, I'm not always in full control. So even the cutest, most wonderful little calf, as it grows up and it has horns, it loses it and it starts goring. And then you have to look at the damage and pick up the pieces and make mends. 
And although the person is responsible, but we appreciate the fact that we don't hold them fully responsible. In other words, it's almost intrinsic to human behavior and human nature. As long as you don't run from it, you don't deny it, you don't repress it. Not perfection, but accountability. And then I pay what I have to pay, half the damage, and we move on. That's a shirtam. But then you have a shirhamuud. A shirhamuud is a bull that is prone to damage. This is already not, I had a hard day. You said something that really, really triggered old stuff, you know, when I was six years old. Or you didn't do, I really needed something and it just, I didn't have it and I was just drained. Fine. What happens is the person now acquires a whole new set of behaviors. This is the little animal who in trying to be comfortable doesn't once in a while binge, develops an addiction. Because this animal is so yearning to have a comfortable life, to be happy, all because of its quest for self-preservation and self-gratification. So this little animal or this big bull becomes what we would call an addict. This is not a shaitan, this is a shaitan. It's continuous behavior that becomes now almost like second nature. The extreme of it is an addiction. Somebody has an addiction to alcohol, or to gambling, or to certain websites, or to nicotine, or to food, or any other addiction. There's a big list. I'm not going to go through the whole list. What is this? This is not just my animal has a void. And I took that extra piece of cake that I know I didn't need, and I get into a depression for 35 minutes, or for three hours, and I get out of it, and I say, you know what? It was a weak moment, and I take responsibility, and I learn my lesson. No, it's un- I'm not controlled anymore. I can't control myself anymore. This is what happens every night, it's what happens every morning, it's what happens every other day, what happens every weekend. This person now is prone to damaging behavior to themselves and to others. You have a father who can never control himself. Every day he's yelling and hollering at his wife. He's yelling and hollering at his children. Hitting and cursing and screaming and, and, and abusing. This is not a shaitan. Does it happen to the best of the best? Of course it happens. And you can apologize. And everybody understands that. We make mistakes. We have Yetzirahs, we have Nefesh Abahamases. But Asher Hamuud means, this is already my pattern. After three times, it becomes a pattern. And a pattern means that it's now almost, it's not innate, but it's almost innate. And here it's a completely different situation. Here now the person cannot claim Innocence anymore, this is a serious problem. You have to take full responsibility, you're responsible for all the damage. Because right now the person has allowed their life to go out of control. And the people who are hurt in the process could be hurt very badly. There's no accountability. Right now I am just in a destructive path. And it continues and continues. This is called a sher hamud. It's not always so aggressive. Sometimes it's more refined. But the point in every person's life is where there's certain components that I'm not anymore, I cannot anymore say it happened. It didn't just happen. It's constantly happening. This is a part of my life that I lost. I simply don't have control anymore. The third region of the brain is out for lunch and for breakfast and for dinner. And remember, when the Torah says about Pare, Hashem keeps on telling Pare. Hashem keeps on telling Moshe, I'm going to harden Pare's heart. 
and he will not send the Jewish people out of Egypt. And all of the commentators say, so why are you punishing him? <laughs> if you hardened his heart and you turned him into a stubborn mule, so don't expect anything from him. So Pari was really a fine guy. So blame yourself. <laughs> you take Pari. And you say, I'm not going to let him surrender and let the Jewish people go. I'm going to make sure that he stubbornly refuses. So what do you want from him? You could do this to anybody. Right? Big, big, big deal. So you turn Pare into a monster, and then you punish him for being a monster. Being a monster. Not nice. This is a big question. Good question, no? He keeps on telling Moshe, Ani achazak is life pare. Achbid is life pare. I'm going to make his heart stubborn. You will not be able to budge him. So what's Vista from Pare? Pare himself was a little mushy piece of wax in a frying pan. You put on the fire, you put, the frogs come in, yeah, go, go, go. But the Rebbein Shalom said, no, we're going to make him tough. <laughs> So there's a lot of different interpretations of the famous answer from the Rambam and the Ramban and other Rishonim. Huh? In the beginning. Yeah, the Rambam says in the beginning he wasn't and the punishment for him doing it in the beginning was that later it became, it became so to speak, impossible. If we want to explain this from, a, from a, maybe a neurological or a psychological point of view, and this is a very profound idea in life, freedom is a muscle. Use it or lose it. A muscle has to be exercised. If you don't exercise a muscle, you can lose it. The more I use freedom, the more I'm free. The less I use freedom, the less I'm free. Go back to the regions of the brain. The more I detach myself from the region of the brain that can actually look at a situation, survey it and ask, what is the right thing to do, what is the wrong thing to do? Not my limbic brain, not my amygdala, but my amygdala, but rather the part of the brain that can be reflective, I don't use it. All I follow is the instinct of what feels good at the moment, what is going to protect me at the moment, what do I need socially at the moment to live and be comfortable. The more and more neural pathways are created that ignore that part of the brain, and now, after a few years, I have no choice. The more I in, engage the other part of the brain, my brain creates physically neural pathways that now turn me into a free person. So the next time I'm drawn to the pantry to go eat, because I'm feeling anxiety, there's another part of the brain that says, let's think about this for a moment. You know why? Because I thought about it yesterday. Because I thought about it the day before. It's a muscle. You use it, you lose it. Paroi, as a result of not thinking about what's right, actually loses his freedom. Like the addict. The addict at this point is not in control anymore. But what made him not in control? What made him not in control were days, weeks, months, years, when he or she pursued a completely destructive path, eliminating that, ignoring that component of the brain, creating neural pathways that don't include that dimension of the brain, and therefore it actually becomes a situation where I'm not free. So are we free or are we not free? That's your choice. <laughs> the more I choose to be free, the more I am free. The less I choose to be free, I'm taking not free. It's taking not my fault. This is what the Rambam explains about Parai. I mean, in language, in, lang- in the language of the Rambam. 
He chose not to be free, and therefore I'm really not free. I'm not. I'm, a, I'm, I'm completely a slave. Do we have free choice? Don't we have free choice? That's your choice. Yitzchak Basheva Singer said, we have to believe in free choice. We have no choice. But I would say it a little differently. Do we have free choice? It's your choice. I may not have free choice. Do you really have free choice what you're going to do today? It's really your choice. If I choose to have freedom, I have freedom. If I choose not to be free, every day I have less and less and less freedom, and at some point I have absolutely no freedom. If I choose today to be free, today it's going to be harder because my brains have to learn new pathways. But in a month, in a year, you're a much more free person. Freedom is not a gift only. Freedom is a muscle. People who exercise muscles, the muscles function on an optimal level. People who exercise once a year, they function on some level. People who never, they say, okay, it's not going to work in this body. So therefore, when this person now goes from Sher Tam to Sher Hamuad, it's a completely different lifestyle. I am now have to be protected. I can't even trust myself. Wherever I go, I gore. Vastutman. <laughs> what do you do? So the halacha says there's two answers. First answer is you got to start training the animal, you got to retrain the animal. You got to take the animal, you got to take the bull by its horns, pun intended. And you have to retrain it. And this training takes time. You have to learn with this animal what is going on. Maybe you have to psychoanalyze its behaviors. You have to explain to it its background. You have to explain to it what its decision process is like. You have to explain to it what it's looking for, what its nature is. And ultimately, Be'ezer Hashem, you can retrain the bull. And suddenly the bull walks around and it's domesticated and once again it reverts to its old status. Comes the halacha and says, there's another path. And the other path is... You transfer its domain. I give it as a gift. I sell it to you. It has a new owner. And it's a different animal. What does this mean in a person's life? In the spiritual life of a person, it means you take your animal and you give it over to God. You transfer its rishus, its authority from yourself to Hashem. You surrender your ownership over your animal, and you give it away to the Rebbein Shalila. What does this mean in a person's life? What it means is, I can't always afford to wait until I can retrain my animal. That can take a very long time, and that retraining is also a, sometimes a very complex process. It's necessary, and sometimes it's crucial and vital, and it's the first natural path that the halacha gives to change the status of an animal and bring it back to its natural, innate, and intrinsic, innocent nature. But there's another dimension, and that is, if I could speak to my animal, and speak to my animal genuinely and seriously, and tell my animal, you belong to God. You belong to Hashem. 
I surrender control over it, and I give it up to God. What happens now is, if you're serious, your animal is going to respond. And it's expressed in different ways. One dimension of it is, the Medrash says, and the Baal Shem Tev teaches it a lot, that Hashem recreates the world every single moment. The world is a new world every moment. We don't live always in that prism. For us, it's the sesame. People say, same old sp- SOS, same old spaghetti. Or whatever the acronym in Muncie is. Same old sushi. Shabbos, same old sushi. The chasana, same old sushi at the Kabbalah's Pana. Whatever the S is. Same old, same old, same old. Here we go again. Routine. The Baal Shem Tev says, you're not in touch with the rhythm of the world. There's a beat, and you have to dance with the beat. You can't dance off beat, because then you lose synchronization with the world, with the balance. And dance with the beat means the world is always being created, every moment anew, which means the dance is always happening right now. If I'm dancing to the beat of a moment ago, an hour ago, a day ago, a week ago, I'm completely out. I'm, I'm detached from the energy. To tune in to life right now means tuning into the power, to the present moment, the power of now, the presence. The present, not the past, not the future, which is why it's called a present, because it is a present, a gift, a matana. And thus, in the world being created right now, there's something called right now. When I give my animal over to the domain of God, who recreates the world every single moment, so the animal could experience itself as a fresh and new being. You don't have to respond to any toxicity, to any acquired habits, learned behavior, that turned your brain into a particular type of creature that only knows this type of behavior. You could see yourself completely new, without any strings attached, because... From God's perspective, you are new. And new doesn't mean you never lived before. It doesn't mean you don't have parents. It doesn't mean you don't have a home. It doesn't mean you don't have a marriage. It doesn't mean you're going to go to the top of the Himalayas and Mount Everest. Even though you would like to do that sometimes. New means that wherever I am in life, I could look at the same reality but with freshness. With complete freshness. But this is like, who are you talking to? I have to transfer domains. As long as I'm have the animal, so all we're doing is we're trying to protect ourselves from the story that happened a moment ago and we're continuing that story. When I take the animal and says, come, we're going over to a new domain. You belong to God. The animal also belongs to Hashem. Because the mistake would be to detach that animal from its source, from God, and reduce it to ashes or dismiss it as evil and destructive. It's not. It's a divine creature. It's a divine creature that is an animal, and it's a divine creature that lost its path and it became a sheremud, but it's still a divine creature. I want to bring you to your owner. We're going to transfer authority. Now when you're in a new authority, you're in a new domain, the animal is sensitive to the fact that in God's domain, the world is new every moment. And as a result of that, the halacha looks at this sher and says, I'm not a sher hamuad anymore. I'm a sher tam. And when the animal really embraces this, it becomes a reality. If the animal doesn't embrace the animal, says, no, of course I'm a sick, crazy, horrible animal. That's what you'll be. 
If the animal embraces its new owner, and the animal could see itself being under this new owner, everything starts anew. It also has another ramification, and that is, changing the domain of my animal often means I sometimes don't have to deal with every issue of the animal, but I have to take my animal and put it into a divine place. When a person fills their life with good things, with godly things, with godly behaviors, they saturate their lives with productivity, with positive energy, with light all around them, that in itself has a tremendous impact. Just the behavior, even if I didn't get to the nitty-gritty of everything in the animal. That's Rishus Mashana. There was once a Jew who was imprisoned by a pirate, by an overlord. And this was in the 1600s. And this Jew had a life sentence. It was a whole long story. And this Jew was given a life sentence because of supposed criminal behavior by this pariz, by this overlord. And this uh, overlord tells him one day that I'm going to be kind to you and I'm going to let you free one day a year. And from prison he writes a letter. He writes a letter to a great rabbi and sage, which day should he choose? A person, imagine, imagine the dilemma, a person is going to be in prison for life. They have one day a year to be free. Which day? He asked, should he come out on Rosh Hashanah? So he could be Rosh Hashanah with his family, with his community, his shofar. Should he come out on Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year. He could fast in prison, but it's Yom Kippur, he wants to be in Shul. Should he come out on Purim? Should he come out for the Seder? Should he come out on his birthday? Should he come out on his wedding anniversary? Should he come out for his... When should he come out? One day a year. Which day should it be? So this letter came to the Radbaz. And the Radvaz saw the question, and he answered that the day you should come out is today. The first possible opportunity, the first possible day you can come out, come out. Don't wait Rosh Hashanah, don't wait Yom Kippur, don't wait Pesach, don't wait your anniversary, don't wait your birthday. You could come out today, come out today. I know tomorrow may be different, but today come out. As he puts it, he says, you could have a mincha today with a minya, you could have a maida with a minya, you could do a mitzvah today in freedom. Do it today. Don't wait till tomorrow. This question, thank God, doesn't apply to us sitting here in this room. But it applies to each one of us on a different level. Because sometimes people think, I'm going to come out that day, I'm going to come out this day, I'm looking for the right day to come out. He said, no, freedom always happens right now, right in this very present moment. Don't push off your freedom till the next month. You Today you have an opportunity to come out of prison, come out of prison today. When the animal or soul understands this energy, this power, what happens is something is shaken up in its consciousness. So yes, there is the first process which is powerful and very deep and long-term 
and profound, and you really get into the animal, and it has tremendous, tremendous benefits if you're sitting with somebody who knows what he's doing, or she knows what she's doing, which is also a grosser mazel and a grosser nesman ashamaya. Because not everybody knows what they're doing, even if they say they do. Sometimes they just take the animal and they fahak it even more. They make it even more complicated, more wounded, and more destructive. But if you have taka, somebody who knows what they're doing, really knows what they're doing, they can help unravel stuff. The point of healing and of therapy and of mentorship of people is not to add more layers of toxicity and problems. You came in a happy person, and I'll show you that you're miserable. You came in thought that you love your husband, I'll show you that you hate your husband. You came in thinking they have a good relationship with your kids, and I'll show you that they mamas despise you. Wow, Baruch Hashem, and now you have self-awareness and your life is miserable. That's not the tachlis of healing. That of healing of a person to unravel the knots and the wines, to take off burdens, to remove, to ultimately become more emancipated. It may take some time, but that's the way it goes. People should never become addicted to the need of feeling that they're always sick and they need somebody to give them healing. They become addicted to that itself. So that's one process. Coupled with that, sometimes it's coupled with it, sometimes it's in addition to that, sometimes it's exclusively one or the other, but the halacha sets forth another very powerful dimension. And that is that at every moment of my life, this is not an easy thing. It seems like a short path, but it's a very, very profound path. Because it's a real metamorphosis in thinking, in mindset. If I could speak to that component in me. There's the godly soul in me, which is never addicted. It's always wholesome and sacred and a piece of the divine. But even the animal in me, the beast, which responds to life, and as a result of that could sometimes become a monster. And a monster on different levels. Towards myself, a monster. Towards others, both. Whatever the situation is, if I could really have the courage and say, that's it, we're going to a new owner. (laughs) I'm going to surrender you to a new owner. If you're serious, the animal will listen. And it becomes from a shir hamuad, it becomes a shir tam. Or let me put it in different words. There's two paths to recovery. And elu ve'elu divri alakim chayim. Both are halachic, both are authentic, both are tyradic. You know why? We usually need both in our life. They don't, they're not mutually exclusive. Sometimes you need more than one, of, you, need more, you need one more than the other. Sometimes one is more effective than the other. But both are very real roads, and usually we need both. The first is a rigorous process of self-refinement in which you de-beast your beast, if you know what I mean. You learn to confront and challenge the deepest fears and urges of your animal. It's painstaking, and you have to de-beast its abusive character. It's a process of, of slow transformation and metamorphosis, and it's powerful. But you know what? There's another process. Sometimes even before I manage to work through all the dark chambers of my wild, untamed animal, Torah presents me with another alternative. And you know what that other alternative is? Change the jurisdiction of your animal. Transfer its domain. Take your animal, take your beast, take your ox, your bull by its horns, and submit it to your higher power. Submit it to the property of God. Even before complete transformation and metamorphosis, surrender it to Hashem. Take your rage, 
your addictions, your depression, your fear, your trauma, your insecurities, all your pain, and everything that's going on, turn to God and say, this is yours. Please, this is yours. I'm giving it to you as a gift. Submit it to Hashem. Let Him share responsibility with you. Let Him become your co-partner. Tell Him, I need you to take this. And when you do that, extraordinary results happen. And no, this is not passive. This is not about passive surrender. Okay, God, I can't take care of my life. I'm over. I'm just going to bed. I'm in a depression. You just run my life because I have no hope. No, this is proactive. This takes courage. This is actively taking your life and giving it over to Hashem. This is not a passive this is not a passive type of life. This is very active. The act of surrender is really, really active. It's really allowing God to become your, the owner of your animal. And it also means don't take it all personal. You're not responsible to analyze and understand everything. Don't start judging everything. Realize this is God's animal that happened to end up in your psyche. And part of your mission is to deal with it, to refine it, to transcend it, to let it be and not let it control your behavior. Realize that this is God's and it was given to you and it allows you therefore to look at it from a much more meaningful and wholesome perspective. And in that process, you know what happens? From a wild, crazy, aggressive bull, you end up with a nice and holy cow. Have a wonderful week. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.